0: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best Murder She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keyes.
1: And I'm your co-host, TJ.
0: And I'm thrown because you started not giving a last name and I never talked to you about why that is.
1: Oh, I mean, I have TJ West, Thomas Jefferson West III, if you like the <laughs> whole pretentious name. So that gives our our podcast a little bit of gravitas. <laughs>
0: Um, and today we're covering, we finished season two, so we're starting season three with the two-part opener, Death Stalks the Big Top. Tej, why don't you give us a quick summary of the
1: episode? This is kind of a wild one. So it begins with a Jessica attending a wedding for her great-niece, it seems like, who is played by Courtney Cox, of all people. And then after she receives a statuette of a leprechaun, which was like a secret little thing she had with her grandfather, it turns out that... Jessica's brother-in-law, who she has long believed to be dead, is in fact working as a circus performer. So if she goes to said circus where there is a murder, and she has to figure out who did it. He is obviously incriminated, because if you have any connection to Jessica Fletcher, you're going to get accused of murder. <laughs> but he is ultimately or absorbed. Murdered. Right, or murdered. But as it turns out, obviously, as we knew from the beginning, he is not responsible. And so Jessica, in her usual fashion, manages to catch the killer with her tried and true. You said something that you could not possibly have known unless you were the murderer. And so that is how it is all solved.
0: Oh, and don't forget her tried and true. I know who did it, but I don't know how to prove it yet. Or I think I can prove it. And then, you know, laying the trap. Right. This is a pretty significant trap they lay.
1: It is. It is. Uh, including, kind of a
0: shocking ending there.
1: Right, where they literally threaten to feed a man to a tiger.
0: <laughs> I mean, they shove a guy's head in a tiger cage. It's pretty awful.
1: I was like, wow, JB is really leaning into she's the- She's really
0: uh, going for it. She's the, like, I abhor violence, but I just don't see any other way than for us to feed you to the tiger.
1: <laughs> which is- I, I love the way she's just sort of blasé about that. She's like, you know, I, I, you know, I don't really- want to do this but you've left me no choice it's like it's pretty <laughs> it's ruthless
0: terrifying. do not ever cross jessica fletcher like she will literally let someone feed you to a wild animal
1: see this is where the mask slips the long-running conspiracy theory that jb fletcher is a mass murder this is the moment when the mask a slips a little. psychopathic
0: bit. serial killer yeah <laughs> the psychopathy shows here definitely <laughs>
1: Well, speaking of things in disguises and, and misdeme- misdirections, for me, the highlight of the episode is when she disguises herself as like, one, oh, it, God, like yes. a, a general store owner and ha- it comes in with those, <laughs> with that very, shall we say, loud outfit. You know, we're, we're very fashion conscious here at Cabot Gazette and this is a true like iconic.
0: It's an iconic moment. I think a lot of people will recognize it from the memes. Yep. So this is the one where she's wearing the straw hat and the uh, heart-shaped sunglasses and this uh, hot pink plaid sort of over long thing uh, and she's what is this accent she's doing it's like it's kind of southern it's kind of Appalachian right
1: I mean they are in Arkansas so that's probably where I'm get- like that's a pretty oh it's a
0: hoot though I mean th- that moment is everything it is
1: I as soon as I saw that I literally was like okay this episode wins like I just could not <laughs> I turned to my partner and I was like this is the best thing I've ever seen The
0: best part is when she rolls up, she rolls up to the circus in this disguise. And like the first thing she does
1: is like, uh, like pick up a
0: chimpanzee and start kissing it.
1: I was like, look, you know, (laughs) this is the aftermath of the Travis, the chimp incident of like a decade ago where that chimp like ate that woman's face, literally. And I'm just like, Jessica, what are you doing? Like, I know it's a baby, but chimps are notoriously like violent creatures. It just seems like quite a risk to take. What? <laughs> what do you? do not. Do you not know what I'm talking? Do, do I need to do a? No,
0: I don't know what you're talking about. What chimp ate who? Don't you face? remember? It
1: happened about a decade ago. It was in Texas. From I
0: think. when Jessica from this episode. No, no, like no, no. In, in real this- life, I bet. Oh well, she didn't know. It hasn't happened yet, so that's I know. But why chimp, she didn't chimp attacks realize. are nothing
1: new. Like every everybody who knows anything <laughs> about chimps knows that they are notoriously <laughs> violent. So you know. I mean, has she seen Planet of the Apes. Come on. I mean, I, but anyway. I have a morbid fascination with a- great ape attacks, so that's...
0: TJ loves Planet of the Apes, you guys. I uh, He talks about it a lot. He's very obsessed with it. Um, but anyway, this chip does not talk.
1: And it doesn't eat her face, thankfully.
0: Doesn't eat her face, thankfully. And actually, we never see it again after she sort of kisses it and puts it down on the ground. But what I love about that moment is she uses the disguise to, like, ask somebody where somebody is so she can, like, try to find the guy she's looking for innocently and then as soon as that woman walks away, she's like, she cannot take off this disguise and throw it in the trash can fast enough. It is like, get this crap off me.
1: Yep, I was like that that was also, a, you know, key part of why that moment is just so hilarious is that, you know, she's just shedding her <laughs> her disguise.
0: Yeah. It felt very true to her character cuz actually as she's wearing that outfit, I'm like I wonder how Jessica Fletcher – like, not Lansbury, right? But, like, how does Jessica Fletcher feel when she thinks this stuff mm-hmm. up? Because it's not the first time we've seen her do a disguise and a funny voice and, like, put on a persona. And is she always, like, needs bust? You know, which feels like Jessica, mm-hmm. or she like secretly like this is going to be so fun. Like this is a part of my life I would love to explore, but I'm too stay, mm-hmm. you know. And then when she like ripped that stuff off and is cramming it in the trash can, I was like, okay, she's like needs
1: must, yeah, right? Yep, yep, yep. Necessity is. She's not say.
0: getting as much delight out of doing this as we are watching. Yep, it.
1: desperate times call for desperate measures. Mm -hmm. but i mean just as as an anecdotal evidence i i find that my parents love those moments when jessica's disguising like when i was visiting my folks just recently the episode we covered where she's on the ship and she pretends to be drunk and all that stuff my parents were loving that moment
0: my johnny lies over the ocean
1: so my you know i think that the lay people really enjoy those moments i mean so do we obviously
0: i love them they're my favorite bits of this show yeah Because we just, it's the moments where we get to see, I think because Jessica is quite buttoned up as a person, she's very nice, she's charming, she's intelligent, Mm -hmm. but she's pretty buttoned up. And so we get to see her letting her proverbial hair down. And it's also moments where it reminds us that Lansbury is a really accomplished actor. And that, you know, the character of Jessica is just not that much of a stretch for her. And then she gets to do all this kooky, flamboyant stuff, and it's like you just get to see Lansbury herself shine.
1: Right, especially given how many times she played Southern in various projects.
0: <laughs> you know, so that's yeah. always
1: fun to, to see her adopt that kind of Southern mentality, even if it is the Southernness of Arkansas as opposed to, say, you know, Georgia or whatever.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the murder. I mean, we actually have multiple plot lines going on here. Like, as you said, we, we have the wedding plot line. We have the looking for the guy who's pretending to be dead plot line, which actually gets wrapped up pretty easily. It doesn't, Jessica is not really hard for her to find him. Mm-hmm. But of course, as soon as she finds him, there's a murder. So we've got the whole like, who who's killing people at the circus?
1: And Florence and Henderson also, shows up.
0: Yeah, and we also have Florence <laughs> Henderson. And this whole side storyline about, like, mom is upset that her kid works at the circus and is trying to court her away with offers of money, so.
1: Yeah, it's a very busy episode, but I felt it was a very coherent episode. Like, it wasn't, I mean, as you say, there's multiple things going on at once, but it feels like they work. Like, it seems to me like it's a very nice episode.
0: hmm And I thought going into this, um, you know, sometimes with two-parters, it can be... Um, writers it can seem like the writers are a little bit lazy and they're just stretching a 45 minute episode into two Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, but
0: we actually have a lot of stuff going on here
1: right I mean bookended of course by you know the wedding that that we're going to the sort of Jessica's extended family through Frank which is always kind of interesting to see other family members other than Grady
0: yeah
1: which I'm wondering I was left wondering is Grady at this wedding
0: yeah he's a Fletcher
1: yeah so he must be
0: Grady should be there
1: yeah, that was my first That's thought. I was like, point. is this Grady's? Yeah. This has to be Grady's, like, what, second cousin or something? Yeah. Yeah, because the woman, because the person in question is Jessica's great niece. Yes. Because it's. Because her
0: grandfather was Frank's brother.
1: Right. So. So. There's a generational question here because that, that would make because Grady they, and Courtney Cox are roughly the same roughly age, roughly the same
0: age, uh-huh. so, but so, yet they know, would be Frank's, first cousins. Frank's brothers and sisters are very spread out. You know, that's there what were, I'm like, guessing. Ten of them, and Frank was the baby, or Grady's parents were the baby. Right. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I think you make a good point. They definitely should have had a cameo, with Michael Horton. I agree. At the end, that was my first that was thought. Amazing. Once it was established
1: whose family we were dealing with.
0: Well, I said let's talk about the murder, but now we're talking about who's in this. So can we actually, can we jump to that?
1: I guess so. I mean, yeah, because to me, that's more interesting than the murder itself.
0: (laughs) Uh, Forget the storyline. Let's talk about who's in this episode. I mean, this is like a packed cast list. We have Martin Balsam playing the circus owner. Martin Balsam. Like, this is big stuff.
1: Would you like to explain who Martin Balsam is? I don't know that he's necessarily a household name. Really? Maybe not for most people, but who like?
0: Oh, well, you you do it because of the Hollywood stuff.
1: I mean, I don't know that much about him as you probably as you seem to. So,
0: well, he's in Lolita.
1: Oh, uh, okay.
0: He's in a shit ton of classical Hollywood movies. I thought he was a really big name. He's not a really uh, big name. Not really. Oh, okay. Well, he seems really big. When name.
1: people think of Lolita, they probably think of James Mason. Yeah, I don't think Martin Balsam is considered, like, a huge star.
0: Well, he's huge to me. Okay, he's in 12 Angry Men.
1: He's known as a character actor, so I guess there's fame associated with that.
0: All right. Well, this part is going to have to be edited, obviously. He's in Psycho, for heaven's sake. He's in All the President's Men.
1: Again, the key people who are associated with Psycho are Janet Leigh and Anthony Perkins.
0: All right. I'm just (laughs) saying, he's been around. It's a big deal. And we have him. We do. Uh, Okay, and then we have, um, I think, the guy who plays Neil, Frank's brother, who's known as Carl at the circus. He was, at this same time, he was Perry White in the Christopher Reeve Superman movies.
1: Oh, now he is famous, like, you know, and very, like, very extensive career in Hollywood.
0: His name is Jackie Cooper.
1: Yes, Uh, very famous as a child actor, among other things. And
0: then we have Courtney Cox, as we said. And this was uh, – Dancing in the Dark was the – when she, you know, sort of got famous for being in that Bruce Springsteen video was 84. So she'd already done that. And Family – do you remember when she was in Family Ties?
1: No, I didn't really watch Family no,
0: Ties. No, it's probably enough of an age gap between us, right? Because you would have been
1: – Four years would be just enough.
0: Yeah. So she was um, Michael J. Fox, you know, Alex P. Keaton's girlfriend for a while in Family Ties. That's where I first knew her from. But that will be right after this. Mm-hmm. And then um, we have as the mayor of the town, who's like this dreadful mayor that is I'm awful. sure we'll talk about truly the great awful. moment where Jessica tells him off. Um, he's played by Ronnie Cox, who was in Beverly Hills Cop. He was in Deliverance. He'll be in a bunch of other action movies after this. Um, but I'm a Star Trek girl, so he'll always be known as Captain Jellico, the bad captain from Star Trek TNG to me.
1: And of course, as we said, there's Floyd Henderson, who plays the de- famous designer.
0: Carol Brady, man. This is a big deal.
1: but I actually think she does her best work when she's playing these ice-cold characters like she is. Like, I find her much more compelling as an actress when she's allowed to when, break out of that sugary mom. When role. she's not
0: being the saccharine Carol Brady sort of type. Me too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean,
1: she's not a monster I, in this role. Like, she does have compassion. But, you know, she has a sort of iron will and a certain icy, de- de- icy detachment that I think really shows how talented Florence Henderson was.
0: And, um... I you know, remember at the beginning of season two in Widow Weep for Me when um, Jessica pretends to be the reclusive millionaire, Marguerite Canfield, mm-hmm. and she sweeps in to the resort, you know, and starts demanding things. And uh, I think we see, it, we see a very similar entrance by Florence Henderson's character here. She's got an assistant, they pull up in a limo, and he's demanding the best suite in the hotel, and the guy's like... This is like the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. Like we don't, we don't have that. Right.
1: I've got you a double with a private right. bath. Like I don't know I what else you want to me. two beds and a bath.
0: That's what you get. But there's a sort of like entitlement that I thought Henderson did. That is just like, mm-hmm. it made, it's like, yes, that is a rich person.
1: And she's just charismatic. Like, I mean, the, Florence Henderson was one of those people that truly knew how to like command the camera, like, and the camera appreciates her in a way that she's just she exerts a powerful hold on you as soon as you see her regardless of whether she's playing likable or not
0: and we also have um greg evigan in this he plays brad who's the nice guy who actually thinks he committed the first murder but he didn't because he's a nice guy of course he didn't Mm -hmm. and teach do you remember the tv show my two dads
1: yes i do vaguely i do yeah
0: okay I was obsessed with that TV show, which in hindsight was a pretty clear indicator that I was going to be gay and hang out with gay men um, because it was my two dads. But he was obviously one of the dads, but this Mm -hmm. was before then. Um, So I just love him because I love that show. And then uh, the sheriff, can we talk about him for a second? Mm -hmm. Did you not immediately when he came on screen get like creep vibes?
1: A little bit, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I see him on screen and I was like, oh, he can't be the sheriff because the sheriff has to be a good guy in the Murder, She Wrote universe. And he is Greg Henry. And the last time we saw him was when he was the murderous son and brother in Broadway Malady.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: So he tried to kill his own family.
1: But he plays, a, he's, he's, he plays a very good and very, you know, sympathetic character in this episode.
0: I know. It's so confusing. Yeah. He's like um he's like new to being a sheriff and he's basically just a lackey for the mayor until this moment where he sort of comes into his own. I mean, there's actually like uh quite a bit of depth to his character for a character we'll never see again. It's kind of interestingly right. written. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Greg Henry will be in a ton more episodes of Murder She Wrote after this too. He's he's uh in a
1: lot. So let's talk about Charles Napier, who plays uh Hank, the guy who gets murdered. Like I have always always liked Charles Napier and I feel like he's another character actor Mm -hmm. who doesn't really get a lot of like I mean people know him but they don't really like he's not a name that people would recognize but he's a face among other things he's in um, Silence of the Lambs he's one of the prison guards that Hannibal murders brutally. It's actually
0: funny that you say that because I immediately recognized him and I had to comb through his IMDB page to figure out where i recognized him from and i still can't figure it out like i've obviously seen stuff that he was in but it's like is that the thing that i remember him from but i remember him like he's so memorable
1: he is and he has a very distinctive voice too it's kind of a gravelly harsh voice which matches with his kind of like really um chiseled face like it's a kind of bluff chiseled face i guess if that a kind of a contradiction but it's it works he has a kind of like the same kind of features you associate it with like Kirk Douglas, for example. Like, if I had to Mm -hmm. choose a person he looks like, that's who he reminds me of. And it allows him to play a really good villain in this role. I mean, he's not the murderer. You know, he actually gets murdered by someone else. But he's really, really not a pleasant person. He assaults women, among other things. And so, you know, when he ends up dead, it's like, well, you know, as as we've said on this podcast before. If
0: you're a older white guy and you are terrible, you probably get murdered.
1: You will almost certainly be the murder victim. (laughs) yep
0: (laughs) which is exactly what what happens
1: you know he's and they're quite brutal i mean a lot of the murders in this show are not particularly like brutal but his death is quite like viscerally described you know because jessica when she's describing the murder is like you know he was killed in such a way that just you know someone couldn't do it by hand because he had like several broken bones he had a broken back and you know ribs and i was just like good lord like this person has been through the ringer as we say,
0: yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a second. But obviously, he was beaten with a baseball bat, uh, and then because it's at a circus, someone tried to stage it to look like the elephants had trampled him, which is just so unfair to the elephants. But
1: <laughs> it is unfair. I mean, but who can blame them, really? I've seen Dumbo. I know what oh, this is like.
0: But um, before we dive into that, I just want to add that we also have Lee Purcell in this, who plays Hank, the bad mm. guy's wife. And we last saw her in Lady in the Lake as the woman who runs naked in the woods and was the mistress of the guy whose wife died. And we'll see her again as another flamboyant character. So I just appreciate the people like her and Greg Henry, who are these, you know, frequent Murder, She Wrote guest stars. Right. So that's a jam-packed cast.
1: It is. So, you know, there's the whole issue, obviously, that, the reason that Carl, that's Jessica's brother-in-law, you know, admits to the murder is because, as you said, like he's beaten to death with a baseball bat, and he believes that the child of the circus who he's friends with is one who did it. So he injures himself to try to like frame himself, which is a very noble thing to do. It seems like Carl's a really stand-up guy, other than faking his death and letting his family believe he's been dead for, for like whatever amount <laughs> <another laughs> of time that we're dealing with. Which I mean, we're led to believe is because of his you know shrewish wife
0: he well that's what he says right and we see at the beginning when jessica is visiting um we see that the his wife is this sort of totalitarian of the household and then his daughter Mm -hmm. is like kind of simpering and subservient because she has such a domineering mother and he says well my wife was so cold and my daughter was so vacuous i just had to get away (laughs) by staging your own death it's like
1: so you let your brother suffer in agony that you were dead right And your sister-in-law and all of your family. But I was like, there's a lot of moral questions going on there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's really. And then he's Jessica says what we're all thinking. She's like, you couldn't just get a divorce. And he's like, well, that would have taken a while, you know.
1: And I wanted to go away and join the circus. (laughs) It's like, oh, right there. Your whole
0: family suffer in their grief. You know, and then Frank dies. We learn in this episode that Frank's been dead for five years, which I don't think we'd ever known exactly, which means he died about two years before the first episode. Um, And he says that he actually did come to the funeral and stood away from everyone. And it's like, I appreciate that. But like, probably what Jessica needed was you to talk to her through this horrible grief, not just to like secretly come you know what i mean like that doesn't help anyone, right. you know with their grief that doesn't offer support to anyone
1: yes and it's <laughs> like and i mean they're clearly very close because he's one of the very f- small number of people who calls her jesse like Jessie. almost nobody calls jessica fletcher jesse like ethan did way back in season one but hardly anyone yeah, calls but her Seth doesn't right so jessica. It's clearly, right or woman <laughs> but you know <laughs> i just was like Okay, I mean, and Jackie Cooper deserves credit for, you know, because he's a very charismatic, again, to use that word. But he's a very, like, compelling screen presence. And, like, we are led to like Carl. He's a stand-up guy because he will frame himself for a murder that he didn't commit to protect the life of a young boy. But it's also just like, my God, you you couldn't tell anyone in your family that you were alive? like
0: What is so surprising to me was how quickly Jessica just accepted it. She's like, well, he's happy. And then, you know, at the end of the at the Mm -hmm. end of the episode, the question is, you know, Courtney Cox's character is so desperately longing for him. She obviously was deeply connected to him. He was the family member she was obviously closest with and isn't, we can tell, close with her mom or grandmother. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Jessica does bring him back and they do get reunited. And she's also sort of like, it's fine. I understand.
1: Yeah, it's like it's not (laughs) really i mean the only thing more horrifying than that is the fact that they still use animals in the circus which i realized was a big thing in the 80s but even so well
0: do you really want to start that one with me because you know that's gonna be like a 30 minute tangent on my part i mean it's really hard for me to watch this episode frankly
1: it is like we see too, a chain
0: around yeah. an elephant's leg at one point i mean that's just horrifying to me and the little teeny cages that they're in i'm very glad that most of these circuses have been shut down
1: in me present day. too And I mean, I went to circuses as a kid, like, you know, before I had my animal consciousness. But looking at it now, it's just like, ugh, ugh, cringe. I mean, I just felt like I needed to say it. I mean, in this episode, it would be remiss of me not to to make note of that.
0: Yeah. Um, And, you know, the whole idea that the elephants have trampled him, uh, I think the best part of that is when... They pick up their little feet. Well, they're not little feet. Mm-hmm. They're giant feet because they're elephants. But they pick up their feet and everyone's looking at the bottom of their little feet. And there's mm-hmm. no blood because obviously elephants are lovely creatures and they did not trample this guy.
1: They would most certainly have reason to suspect elephants would trample a person. These <laughs> like, elephants that is would a,
0: that, not trample this That is a very,
1: very feasible scenario. The other curious thing,
0: though, is like, while people are questioning whether the elephants trampled them, like people keep like coming up to these elephants. And, right. like, if you, if you guys think these are murderous elephants, maybe don't get so close and, like, be, like, ducking down. They're, like, on the ground searching for things around the elephants. And, like, right. if you thought these elephants killed someone, like, should you not be remotely concerned that they will now trample you, too?
1: Right. But speaking of small cages, to talk about the murder for a moment. So it turns out that the culprit, who almost gets fed to the tiger... <laughs> Is this, this Smarmy Preston Bartholomew, um, which Master. is a lovely name for a villain? And he's very like, um, I mean, I was kind of expecting him to start twirling his mustache.
0: I had a question about that. I was, uh, like, ringmasters obligated to have handlebar mustaches? I think so. I
1: think it's okay. re- I think it's in the work. Re- it's in the circus regulation. Like,
0: it was either that or like he was supposed to translate as villain because it is totally like a
1: twirly. He's like Snidely Whiplash from Bullwinkle or Wabbit. Do right, I guess. <laughs> he totally is. Yeah. Or the or the ringmaster and Dumbo, like you know, there's that. It's it's a subtle like allusion to like you know, stage melodrama where it's like, ha ha, I will get away with this. He also talks like that. He has this Well, that's how he,
0: yeah, the whole reveal at the end. He's like...
1: I can't even imitate.
0: If if this had happened, this would have gone down like this. And he's postulating it all as like this... And it's also just the way he speaks is this
1: really over, like... He's kind of like Simon Callow. Like he has this really overly mannered way of speaking that is very grating after a do while.
0: Not, do not start in on Simon Callow because we oh, deeply disagree about how glorious <sighs> Simon Callow truly is.
1: Ugh. Overly over, overwrought. And I and that's me. I'm the queen of overwrought <laughs> anyway. I'm saying that, but as it turns out, he was doing all of the, you know, he was committing all of these like sabotages of the circus on behalf of another circus owner and then he murdered said circus owner, and then he murdered Hank. Cause he, and then he you know, tried to
0: murder Jessica and Hank's wife.
1: Right. It's like, this guy is really... It's pretty bloodthirsty. Unhinged. And all because he was going to get some money. And it was like... as I, I, That's why I said earlier when we were going through the litany of who was in this show, I said that was more interesting than the murder plot. Because the murder plot's fine and serviceable. But it was to me, like, it was all the other pieces of the episode that were more compelling than
0: that mm. part. Interesting. See, I think the whole – they've done it before, so it's not particularly new, but the whole, like, Brad thinks he killed Hank because they got into a fist fight, and then Hank was knocked unconscious. So when Hank is later found dead, you know, Brad thinks he killed him. But no, of course not, because Brad's a good guy and Hank wasn't killed with fists, you know, and then um, Neil Carl – sees that the guy was killed with a baseball bat. He knows the baseball bat belonged to the kid. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants a kid to go to jail for murder. And he thinks probably the kid is just doing it to protect his mom because Hank was about to assault his mom. So I think those those things for me were very interesting. And then when the real is like – Actually, he was sabotaging the elephant's chain so they right. would run off or run wild or stampede around or whatever. And Hank saw him.
1: But I thought these elephants were in. I thought these were innocent elephants that they wouldn't ever do elephants
0: such a thing. Elephants are amazing. Do you I, know anything I, about d- elephants? I, I, these elephants me. wouldn't
1: hurt a fly. If you if you actually knew a lot about elephants, you would know that's literally the opposite of the truth. <laughs> because <laughs> as it happens, I do know a lot about elephants. They're these elephants wonderful.
0: would not hurt anyone. I'm telling you. Anyway, so because Hank sees him sabotaging his, I mean, this guy is so gross that his, like, the only thought in his head is like, well, I have to kill Hank, right? With a, with a baseball with bat. With a baseball bat. He
1: has to bludgeon him to death with a baseball bat. To make it bat. look like the elephants. Yeah. Like, that's horrifying. Yeah. Like, it's, I mean, he deserves to have fit to that tiger. Yeah, well, I think then the succession of
0: murders that follow out of that, I mean, he presents it all as like, I didn't really have a choice. Like, there was this sort of snowball mm-hmm. effect, but it's like... So then he goes to the competitor and he's like, look, I did the sabotage. I want my money. And he's like, well, you killed a guy. I I don't like that. I didn't authorize that. So he's like, well, I guess I'll have to kill you too. (laughs) What? (laughs) And then he makes a slip up in what he says to Jessica and
1: his wife.
0: And he realizes it. So then he knocks them unconscious and sets a motel room on fire to murder them. I mean. He's pretty. Yeah. He's pretty like. He's deranged.
1: Yes. With no trace of remorse, which is a true mark of a psychopath.
0: That's a good point, Teach, because that's um, not common to our our murder she wrote universe. Right. Usually, people are like, "Oh my god, I didn't have, I didn't think I had any choice, and I feel so awful, and I didn't want to do it. I just, di- I felt trapped." Right. And this guy's like, "I didn't really have any choice, so you know, I just did it, whatever."
1: And then I'm gonna feed Jessica to a tiger. So it's like,
0: <laughs> yeah. The only reason he confesses isn't because he's caught. It's because they're going shove his head in
1: a tiger cage. But I mean I think that as brutal as that is as a mechanism for justice I do think that that shows us that the characters understand including Jessica that this is the kind of person who will literally never confess because he knows the system will get will absolve him mm. and so the only way to get a confession although I I do wonder whether a confession extracted under threat of tiger will hold up in court but <laughs> but even great. so <laughs> even so it is you know I think emblematic of their understanding that this is not a person that will, you know, easily be persuaded to give themselves up.
0: That's such a good point that I hadn't really thought of as I was watching and taking notes, but you're right. And um, again, like that's just so unusual in this universe.
1: And I mean, that's part of what makes him such a terrifying murderer is that he is just so willing to do this and, you know, to keep on doing it. Like he's just one of those people who seems to have no conscience And no sense of guilt or compunction over what he's done.
0: On the brighter side, though, I think we have the sheriff, as we said, um, who sort of learns how to be a sheriff Mm -hmm. from this experience. You know, I really love Ronnie Cox's mayor. He's like the you know bossy you know do what I say
1: right and is quite aggressive and very mean toward Jessica and is like threatens to have her arrested for obstruction of justice or whatever or impeding an investigation yeah, he calls her
0: a Yankee busybody
1: which you know that's not the b word he wanted to use you could make
0: oh I didn't think about that but
1: that's what that translates to <laughs>
0: And he um, he's basically running the show because the sheriff kind of doesn't know what he's doing and and then Jessica finally like snaps on him which is so great and she says you have about as much right to investigate this murder
1: as Jack the Ripper. I love it when Jessica – I and love. I, I, and I mean, singers. also like, what is a mayor doing investigating a murder? Like, you're not trained in criminal enforcement, or criminal investigation, or like any of those kind of professions like what are you doing dude i mean i know this is arkansas and so, he's trying
0: to hold his town together
1: sure but even so i was just like what kind of system has it where american conducts criminal investigations?
0: well I, I love that too because that's the moment when the sheriff finally you know so jessica tells him tells him off and he tells her back and he tells the sheriff to arrest her and then that's the moment when the sheriff is finally like no this doesn't make sense yeah. he's like i'm not gonna do your bidding anymore i'm gonna investigate this you need to back the hell off. And uh, it's really lovely. And I think he and Jessica have this nice moment where she is, like, you know, kind of encouraging him. He's like, I'm really new to this. I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm doing. And she's like, you're doing great. Keep going, you know. And then he has this moment where he's like, I'm ready. I'm ready to do the job of mm-hmm. being sheriff. Yep. It's really actually quite sweet. Um, you know, and we talk a lot about the different ways that Jessica engages with the law enforcement. And I thought this one, she has much more of a mentoring role.
1: Yes, I thought that was a lovely grace note myself.
0: Yeah. We should also talk about the ending, Tej, because um, our final shot is Jessica with Courtney Cox's dad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So not Frank's niece, but the guy she married.
1: Right, his his nephew-in-law.
0: And um, he also is very downtrodden. And when he learns (laughs) that Neil has run off to... Um, to the circus and now he's asking for advice whether he can afford to buy the circus. Uh, This guy is sort of like, yeah, maybe I'll fake my own death too. family. And the final shot is like him and Jessica arm in arm laughing about that possibility.
1: Yeah. It's clearly not a uh, particularly uh, enjoyable family to be a part of, shall we say, to put it mildly. (laughs)
0: Yeah, poor Clay, the guy who's marrying into this nonsense. I know, right? We never yeah. see him, but I'm like, Clay, you should run now while you yep. can.
1: I mean, the grandmother's already made it clear how dead set she is against this marriage, so I can't imagine it's going to be a particularly <laughs> happy union.
0: I just, I, the fact that everyone in this family thinks that um, faking your own death is the only way out <laughs> of a bad situation is very troubling to me.
1: Yes, it's one of those things that only happens in TV land. Well, although, <laughs> no. although we, as we revealed <laughs> to bring this into current events, there was that novelist who faked her death two years ago and has now resurfaced. So clearly, this happens more frequently it was, than I this thought.
0: This is a very timely episode for us to be reviewing because you and I just found out about that story in the last two days. It's wild. Yeah, don't fake your own death, people. <laughs> there are lots of better ways to handle things. There, yes, I
1: say there are avenues. There are people you could talk to.
0: Especially in this case, because it wasn't as if anything was like violent. They weren't. He wasn't like on the run from the mob,
1: right? It's not like his family business was collapsing because of embezzlement. (laughs) Like you know, it's just like well, my wife was my wife was disagreeable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) makes total sense.
0: (laughs) If I'm not here next week, Tej,
1: I don't know what happened because
0: you were disagreeable, and I staged my own death (laughs) to get out of the podcast. Oh, Lord. Okay, well, that's probably sufficient for now uh, for our two-parter opener to season three, Deathstalk's The Big Top. And next week, we'll be back with a very special episode. And until then, I'm Bridget Keys,
1: And I'm TJ West, the third.
0: <laughs> we'll catch you next time.
1: Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.